we're really delighted to have Owen and Anna in the family with us today. Um, Owen's an elder at uh, Church Central, with whom we're really good friends. Actually, we, um, we managed to scrounge a room in their offices for about six months, and we absolutely loved that last year in 2017 and got to know them even better. Um, Owen is um, not just someone who works for the church, but also who works for Christians Against Poverty. And uh, when we were praying last year about who might it be good to come and speak to us as a church, we really felt actually God directing us towards asking Owen. Um, Owen is someone who not only has a teaching gifting, but who lives what he's bringing to us. And so we've got so much to receive from him. And in fact, over recent weeks and months, we feel that God's really prepared the way for Owen to come to us, not least in the prophetic word that was mentioned earlier that Dave Devnish gave us at the Catalyst Festival. So this is a moment for us to open up our hearts to say, I'm not just in the room to be entertained, but to allow God to speak to me through what Owen's going to come and bring. So can we give him a really warm welcome as he comes up? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for that welcome, Mike, and uh, thank you all for that warm, warm, warm reception. Um, yeah, as Mike said, we're, we're very local here, being a part of Church Central, and in fact, my wife Anna was a member here at, Ch- at Oasis for many years. So we do feel a, a, a strong connection, a strong affinity with you guys. In fact, um, our church is multi-site, so we have three different locations. And at one point, I was leading our site, which was based in Edgbaston, when you guys were half a mile up the road at, um, at the cricket ground. And now I'm leading our site, which is actually based at Lordswood Girls' School, which is half a mile from here. <laughs> so we've always stayed close, even you know, by accident. It's, I'm sure God has just kept us close, which is, which is really nice. And... Um, yeah, just big greetings and big love from everyone at Church Central and from all of the people that you may know as part of the church. And um, can we, I just want to start by saying that we, we love you. I just want to say that. We love you. I'm a gusher. Sorry, you're going to have to get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> but we do. We really love you guys. Uh, uh, and that's true of us, of Anna and I and our family. It's true of uh, the guys that you know from, from our church as well. We really love you guys. And we love being side by side and together with you in family and in mission in Birmingham. It's just fantastic. So um, it's really, really wonderful to be here. We were just in worship. We just looked at each other and we're like, this is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be here. So thank you for having me and having us. Um, the, uh, the message that I feel God's given me to share with you today, uh, we'll be opening the Bible in a moment, but just very simply, it's entitled, You Will Always Have the Poor With You. Okay, you will always have the poor with you. And what we're going to do is, in the time we've got, we're going to look at that phrase, we're going to look at where it comes from, we're going to look at what, what does it mean, and consider the implications for us as Christians and as people involved in church in 21st century Birmingham. So we're going to look at it in terms of what it means for us in our context. Now, um, you're probably familiar with the phrase the poor you will always have with you. It is a phrase from the Bible. In fact, it's a phrase that came from the lips of Jesus himself. Um, It's in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. Uh, And so we're going to look at one of those stories, which is in Mark's Gospel. So if you're following, if you have Bibles with you, you might want to open to Mark chapter 14. We've got it on the screen as well. Wow, even with a lovely background. That's that's impressive. That's good. (laughs) 
so Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 8. This little phrase that I want to pick up on is uh, couched inside this story that we're just going to read together. So, so let's read. While Jesus, while he, Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told also in memory of her. So there's a story, maybe for many of us that's a familiar story, and you might have heard sermons on it before, and the kind of story is about devotion to Jesus, right? It's a worship story, it's a great story of worship. Often I've heard that preached in terms of, this is about devotion to Jesus. She was anointing him, anointing him with this, with this uh, perfume. And you can kind of think, okay, that's great, this is what this story is about, it's about devotion to Jesus. But um, um, that might, we might touch on that as we go through today, but actually, there's more to it that's under the surface. And it it's, can be picked out in this little phrase. It almost seems like a throwaway phrase that Jesus says as part of it. This little phrase about the poor. You'll always have the poor with you. It's one of those phrases of Jesus that's kind of been taken out of context and lifted. And actually has caused, over the years of, uh, the, year, the last 2,000 years of the Christian church, caused quite a lot of debate, a bit of confusion maybe, in terms of what did Jesus mean when he said this, you'll always have the poor with you. So let me illustrate. I think we can all agree poverty is not a good thing, right? Poverty is not a great thing. It's a bad thing. And so when Jesus says you'll always have the poor with you, it kind of sounds a bit, almost a bit defeatist, Okay, can I say that? It almost sounds a bit, a bit, bit defeatist, like, well, the poor are always there. And some con- one conclusion that some people have made from this is to actually say, well, Jesus said we'll always have the poor with us, so what's the point? What's the point of helping them, actually? What's the point of doing anything to help the poor? Okay, maybe um, we can show them a bit of charity. You know, maybe we can help them, we can give them a bit of help here and there. But we need to accept, basically, that they're always going to be with us, because Jesus said it. Jesus said, we always have the poor with you, so the poor are always going to be with us. There's always going to be some people who are poor, so we just need to accept that, and we need to do what we can, uh, but basically we're not going to change the situation. And there are some people that subscribe to that view, that that's how they interpret this verse. And there are others who say, no, 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 Jesus can't have meant that. Surely, right, poverty's a bad thing. Jesus is the saviour of the world. He's come to change the situation. Surely, our mission is to eradicate poverty. If you remember a few years ago, there was a, a, a campaign called Make Poverty History, uh, which I remember um, being around and, um, you know, Bono got involved. It, was, it got a bit of notoriety around the world. 
And, uh, and, and so for some, for some people, for some charities, even today, like, that's the vision. The vision is we're going to eradicate poverty. Because if we're going to combat it, there's a pragmatic argument. If we're going to combat poverty, we've got to believe that we can destroy it, right? Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point if we're fighting a losing battle? Okay. Now, let me ask you. I'm not asking you for hands up or to respond. Which of those interpretations do you gravitate towards most? It's quite a challenging, straight to the heart question, I know, but uh, we're going to open it up more, going to explain it more. But if you had a natural kind of gravitational pull, would it be towards, yes, surely as Christians, our job is to eradicate poverty and we can do it through our campaigning and through our action for the poor? Or on the other side, are you more in the camp of, well, do you know what? Jesus said the poor is going to be with us, so we can do a bit, but we're not really going to change the situation. Okay? challenging question. So just hold that in mind in terms of what's your, what's your bias? Which way do you lean in terms of that? Well, let's have a look a bit more deeply at what Jesus is saying here, okay? Because uh, there's more to say. So when he says this phrase, it's a bit like, like if you were to say to me, hey, Owen, how are you doing today? And I was to say, oh, I'm doing great. Do you know what? I'm walking on sunshine. You'd know where that reference came from, wouldn't you? Most of you, maybe people who are, remember the 70s and disco music and that sort of stuff, you'd remember, well, oh yeah, Walking on Sunshine, I know that's a reference to that song, isn't it? I'm walking on sunshine. It's like a cultural reference. So, so when I say that phrase, you know exactly what, where that's from and what that means. So when Jesus said this phrase in a seemingly throwaway fashion, you'll always have the poor with you. It was actually a cultural reference, a trigger point that his disciples would have known where that came from. Remember, these were guys, even though they were, they were fishermen and they were different from different walks of life, they weren't sort of necessarily trained. Um, but because they were part of this Jewish community, they would have every week, they would have gone to synagogue, like we do, come to church every Sunday, they would have gone to synagogue every week, they would have heard the public reading of Scripture, they would have been schooled in the covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai through, through Moses. They were, they were, they were proud Jewish people, so they would have been passionately subscribing to that. So they would have heard the law read out regularly every week. And in the fifth and final book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, there's a little verse in Deuteronomy 15, chapter 11, and it says, there will always be poor people in the land. So when Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, it's like a reference. Walking on sunshine. Ah, I remember that. That's where it says, doesn't it? There will always be poor people in the land. So there's, a, there's an immediate kind of connection point there. So for us, coming to this in the 21st century, we need to go back to Deuteronomy to see what that's all about. Okay, so we're just going to look at uh, Deuteronomy 15 and the whole passage is sort of verses 4 to 11. I'm going to read the whole passage and then explain it. Now this bit gets a little bit technical, but that's okay. I trust the Holy Spirit will help me to and help us to guide through this together and uh, to explain it. The potential confusion here is you may have noticed, those of you who are keen-eyed have already started reading it, because in verse 4, it starts off by saying, there need be no poor people among you. <laughs> we know which side you're swinging towards. <laughs> I like it. And then, so that's verse 4. Verse 11, it says, there will always be poor people in the land. 
You know, it's one of those situations maybe where your friends who aren't Christians, they're like, oh, well, the Bible contradicts itself. There you go. There's a concrete example. In one breath, it's saying there need be no poor people among you. In the next breath, it's saying there will always be poor people in the land. What's going on with that? Let's have a look. Let's read the whole passage. So verse four, there will always, sorry, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of cancelling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-hearted towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. So, commentators agree, so people who know a lot more about the book of Deuteronomy than I do, that because this tension is so obvious, and it must be deliberate. This isn't just like a, oh, whoops, he's contradicted himself. Ah, this is, no, God is saying something here. So what's he saying? So verses four to six, right? So where it says that there need be no poor people among you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God, I will bless you as I've promised, etc. This is portraying an ideal situation. This is betraying the covenant situation that God is laying out with his people. Where God's people are fully obeying him, there need be no poverty. Then in verses 7 to 11, the writer starts to show an awareness that just maybe God's people might not fully obey him. If you look at some of the phrases there, saying it's talking about God blessing the people, there need be no poor people, but then it says... Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Those are pretty strong words. Don't don't harbour a wicked thought that means you give people nothing. Because actually, if you do, then they might pray to God and you might be found guilty of sin. It's like, hang on, there's a serious risk here that we might actually be... God says he's going to bless us in the next breath, but you might be guilty of sin if you're not careful with with your attitude towards the poor. Now, this is something that happens throughout the book of Deuteronomy, The blessings of the covenant are proclaimed by God to his people, but there's also warnings of that this needs, that people need to follow, people need to obey God, people need to walk with God. Uh, Probably the most famous example of this is the, the passage towards the end of Deuteronomy where it says, you know, I set before you blessings and curses, life and death. Now choose life. And all the way through that book, it, there's kind of this. God is, is, is blessing them. He's giving them the covenant. He's saying to them, you're my special people. I'm calling you out from the nations among you, among you and I'm blessing you and I'm going to be with you in an extra special way. 
Of all the nations of the world, I've called you, Israel, to be my son. It's beautiful. It's amazing covenant that God's making with his people. But then throughout, there's these warnings. But, but don't, don't disobey me. Don't walk off. Don't go with other gods. Because if you do, it's not going to work out well for you. Okay? So what God is saying here is this principle, that where divine blessing is met with human obedience, there need be no poor people in the land. But where wicked thoughts, hard-heartedness, and tight-fistedness, it's a good word, isn't it, are harbored, and where, therefore, people go without, and then the community is found guilty of sin, then the poor can go unhelped. And so verses 7 to 10 here, it anticipates Israel's rebellion and failure to keep the covenant. And so therefore, the final verse concludes, there will always be poor people in the land. It's kind of a subtle thing that's happening in the passage here. And look, let, so coming back to where I started in terms of which way do you swing, think of it like this. Why are the poor always with us? Essentially, when you boil it right down, it's because of sin. So sin leads to inequality. The sin of hard-heartedness, the sin of tight-fistedness, the sin of, 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 of judgmentalism, of lack of generosity, leads to an inequality where some people have more and some people have less. And inequality leads to poverty. I hope that makes sense. As I said, it was a bit te- it's a bit technical, but it's actually really important that we understand this kind of biblical definition, this p- biblical thing. If you think about it, that as Christians, you know, we, we, don't, we know that sin is a bad thing, okay? Rebellion against God, uh, 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 selfishness, self-centeredness of heart. We know those things are bad. Um, but if, if I was to say to you, well, can we eradicate sin? You'd probably say, well, no, Jesus does that. Okay, great. Has he done it in our lives? Yes, but we still sometimes struggle with it. Will he do it ultimately, eternally when he returns? Yes. So poverty kind of falls into that category, okay? Is poverty a good thing? No. Has Jesus done something about it? Yes, through coming and through announcing a new kingdom. Is that kingdom fully here? No. So therefore, we still have poor people in the land because of sin, because of inequality. Is there a hope ultimately that that will be dealt with? Yes, because Jesus is coming back and it says in Revelation he's going to wipe every tear, he's going to remove every uh, strain of inequality, he's going to um, come and bring in his, his kingdom in fullness. So let's, let's think about that a little bit more. Let's look at what God's solution is then here on the earth. Uh, so there's a little bit that I haven't emphasized yet, the very final part of this verse 11 in Deuteronomy 15 There will always be poor people in the land, and this is the key bit. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed and generous with those who are poor and needy. So when Jesus said this to his followers, they would have understood this this backdrop. They would have understood this reference to Deuteronomy. And it would have led them to understand, if they had ears to hear, that when God's kingdom is truly lived out, then there need be no poor people among his covenant community. And this is mirrored, of course, in Acts chapter four. This is a passage about the church that we love to kind of, it's like, the, it's like all, it's, it's the church that all of us want to be part of and the church that all of us want to be in. 
yeah, where it says they shared their possessions, um, they gave to each other as there was need, there was community, they loved one another, and it says, doesn't it, there were no needy people among them. Again, another reference back to that passage in Deuteronomy. And that's because when God's kingdom comes, there's something beautiful about the kingdom. It's something new. It's something that's different from the world. It's something that, you know, we talk about heaven breaking in. That's what it is. The the community of the kingdom, which is the church, demonstrates and models something new. And that is a kingdom where um, needs can be met and there need be no poor people. And we can go even further than the people in Deuteronomy. Because while, yes, we still have the warnings in terms of obedience and walking with God, we also have the fullness of, of knowing Jesus. We know him. We know what he's done. We know who he is. We've seen the very face of God in Jesus. We've seen him revealed to us. We know him personally. We have his spirit. We have his spirit in us, in our hearts. So each of us are empowered and able to live this stuff out. And you know, the church is something so beautiful. The church really is. The church is, is, is God's demonstration. It's God's plan A, and it's his plan B, and it's his plan C, and it's his plan D as well. There's no other plan than the church. So I believe it's possible to have a church where there are no needy people, even in a church where there is extreme poverty. And in, in the Jerusalem church, which the one passage in Acts is talking about, there was extreme poverty. There were widows who were utterly destitute, who had nothing, had no one. There was no, there was no welfare state. There was nothing to, to help them. The church had to look after them. So it's possible that the church can be that place. And so the first application just to bring for you is that he calls us to be the church, the community of the kingdom, and we can model this, we can demonstrate it. And we may always have the poor among us and with us, therefore be open-handed and generous and model God's coming kingdom where needs can be met and where poverty can be fought, can be combated. So there is something in the church, it can look a bit different can look a bit different. Right, next point, just to take that a bit further. Okay, I just want to talk about charity and justice. Just, just briefly, just want to say about charity and justice because these are two different ways of understanding this stuff that are really important for us to get to grips with. Because in order for this to really happen, in order for there to be truly a church where there's no needy people among us, we need to go beyond charity into something else. Look at what the disciples said. They rebuked harshly. They rebuked harshly this woman who just anointed Jesus. You know, publicly disgraced her. And obviously he, he, he rebukes them. But they're saying, look, this perfume should have been sold and the money given to the poor. That's a charity mindset, okay? A charity mindset says, okay, we can, uh, we, we can give to the poor. That's a good thing to do. Um, But essentially, what we really believe is that the poor are weak and helpless. Uh, We can share some of our surplus with them and help them out a bit. That's what a charity mindset says. So we give up, we give money to charity. Maybe we help people on the street occasionally that we see. uh, And um, we can give out of what we've got. Now look, I'm not knocking those actions. Those actions are good. It's good to be generous. It's good to be open-handed in any way whatsoever. But poverty is a big problem. And it needs a big solution. It needs more than just charity. See, the, the problem is with charity is that sometimes for those of us who are, particularly for those of us who are rich, uh, which, you know, globally, you can probably define as most of us in the room 
Um, it may not, may not include everyone, but generally speaking, uh, most of us who have, who have got a lot can think in this way. Charity can be a bit low cost, ultimately. We can sort of, we can give, we can maybe do our ice bucket challenge or, you know, retweet a few things or, or whatever it is. And, and it can feel, it can salve our conscience a bit maybe because we feel a sense of injustice and we know that it's wrong and we want to do something about it. So it's like, okay, this is something we can do. We feel perhaps a bit better about ourselves. But the problem is it doesn't really go far enough. And actually there's a bit of uh, what you might call kind of paternalism in charity mindset as well which is where you're essentially thinking, I'm good, and aren't I good to give to the poor? Give myself a pat on the back. That's, that's what can come with that mindset. Essentially, and this is getting a bit more challenging now, okay? Essentially, what you can do is you can think, I've worked hard, I've, I've gone up the ranks, I've earned this money, so therefore, if I give to the poor, well, I'm, it's good. It's good. It's good for me to do it. What that forgets is that before God, we're all equal. And actually, if, if, you, if, if you are, have been able to do that, if you've worked hard, if you have done well for yourself, then that's great. But where's the credit go for that? It goes to God. He's the one who's, who's, who's blessed you. He's the one who's given to you. And all of your, everything that you have belongs to him. Okay. It might, so, so, what Jesus is saying here is that we don't need a charity mindset, we need justice. It's about justice, it's about maintaining justice. And it's worth saying here, okay, what is poverty? How do we define the poor? Because it's very easy to think, okay, it's economic. We talk about it in economic terms. It's, it's, it's people that haven't got enough money. It's people that, that can't quite pay the bills. A lot of people I work with who are debt, struggling with unmanageable debt. That's the obvious way to, 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 to say they haven't got enough money and they owe people money. Okay, that's one way of, of saying, of, of defining what poverty is. And that's fine, but it's way too simplistic. Okay, and if you look at Jesus' society, and if you look at the Gospels, it meant a lot more than that. Throughout the Gospels, the poor are associated, when you meet people in the Gospels where it says they're poor, it's always associated with dishonor, shame, and exploitation. Okay, so... Um, in Luke's gospel particularly, you know, Jesus meets people who it says they're captive, they're, they're blind, they're oppressed, hungry, persecuted. So that when people are victims of injustice, it means that they're powerless. It means that they don't have the power to be, be in control of their own lives in some way. And it means that they're excluded from full participation in society. They're unable to maintain their own rights and they're vulnerable to oppression by the powerful or the unscrupulous. Now that is a definition of poverty. That, that's, that's what poverty really is. So, and in other words, the people that are suffering injustice, these are the people that God cares about because he is the God of justice. That's why God doesn't like poverty because he's the God of justice. And when people are under injustice and they're powerless, his eyes are on them. That's why it says it's good news to the poor because those are the people who are, they, 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 they're trapped. They cannot help themselves. So when we talk about fighting poverty, that's where we need to go. As God's covenant people, we need to tackle injustice head on. And that's how we break 
poverty systematically. So I hope that's helpful in terms of justice and charity. We don't, we don't go for charity, we go for justice. And, and what, what we see here is that rather than selling something valuable, donating the money to the poor, which is what some of the disciples wanted to do, what Jesus is saying here subtly is that the people of God are supposed to organize their whole society in a way that enacts this jubilee, that enacts this community um, where needs are met. So where God's people get this, there's a modeling of God's kingdom values that goes beyond charity. Just think about, I think the thing we need to remember, and like, this might sound obvious to you, but I think I'm going to say it anyway because it was important for me to get to grips with this. People who are poor, right? They're people. They're people, just like you and me. They're capable of self-transformation. This is a really important point. People who are poor are capable of self-transformation as the injustices are righted. Okay? Because if you were oppressed and powerless, just imagine for a moment, if you were in a situation where you were totally powerless and you were oppressed, just imagine if you had people knocking at your door or, or, or people stopping your kids going to school or, or something really bad happening to you or your family, then, and if you were completely powerless to do anything about it, it's really hard for us to imagine this in our society, I know. But there are people living in our society who live under this on a daily basis for one reason or another. So just imagine, if that was you, if you were powerless, if you were completely like, and you knew it was injustice, you were like, this is wrong, this is bad, God, help, what's going on here? I can't believe that this is happening. Wouldn't you want someone to stand up for your rights? And Jesus said, didn't he, you know, this is summing up the Lord, do to others as you would have them do to you. So... If you were poor and oppressed, you'd want someone to do something about it for you. So if you're not, and there are others that are, are, then we need to do something for them. This is a challenging message, right? I know it is. But I kind of, I just feel this is, well, I tell you what, I, as I was saying earlier, we love you guys. We, you know, we know this church. We've walked side by side with you for a long time. And you, and I say to you, you have modeled this to us as a church. You are, you are a great church who knows what it means to love and serve the poor. And you ha- always have been, ever since I've known you. I know that was something that, that David said in his word as well. It's a foundation that's here. And so I just feel I can push this a little bit with you, if that's okay. Because <laughs> it just feels like, you, you, know, this, you know this stuff. But I think there's more. There's more that God has for you in terms of justice, in terms of taking this further and modeling something different. Modeling something different. So back to the passage, back to the story. This is kind of my final point now. Um, there's something else here in this story, and it's about the social location of the church. Okay, this story in Mark 14, it's interesting to see where it happens. And it happens at the margins. Okay, it happens in Bethany. Bethany was a little village just outside Jerusalem, an insignificant place. If you were going to do something significant in the spiritual life of Israel, you'd do it in Jerusalem, inside the walls, probably inside the temple. But this happens outside in a little village. It's outside. It's at the house of Simon the leper. And most of us understand that to be a leper in that society was to be an outsider. This lady that anoints Jesus, she's an unnamed woman. 
a woman in that society had lower status. And the fact that she wasn't named shows that she was an outsider. She was a nobody. She was someone who in society's eyes would have been scorned. And yet, she is the one who anoints Jesus as king and as Messiah. I just, that is, that is mind-blowing. So Jesus, right, his name is Christ, Messiah. That means anointed one. So he's coming as the one that Israel were hoping for. He's coming to be anointed as king and as Messiah. And this is the only place in the Gospels where he is anointed. And he's anointed by this woman. She, she knows and understands something about him. And she pours this expensive perfume on him because she knows this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the one who's going to turn things around. This is the king. And God gives the job of anointing his Messiah to an unnamed poor woman on the outside fringes of society. If you were a priest, if you were a Levite in that society, you might have dreamed about being the one who anoints the Messiah as king. They were hoping for the Messiah to come. They, that, that, the Israelites were like, we're longing for him. We think he's going to come. And if you were a Levite at that time, you might have think, maybe it'll be me. Maybe God will choose me. If I, if I follow the law, if I'm a Pharisee, if, if I do as best as I can, if I stay as close to the temple in Jerusalem as I can, maybe one day I'll get that job. And yet God gives it to this amazing woman. It's just mind-blowing. So from the place that we expect, um, we least expect, exemplary discipleship to be shown comes this act of generosity that actually just supersedes anything that Jesus and his, Jesus' disciples have done. And that's why it says this story will be told in her honor. So what this shows is God loves to elevate the poor. God loves to bestow dignity, worth. He loves to lift them up. He loves to give them an identity that society will not give them. In fact, the opposite identity. And we see that in the song of Hannah and the song of Mary, don't we? He lifts the poor from the ash heap and seats them up with princes. That's what God does. That's what God is like. People who have suffered the effects of poverty have much that God sees and that God honors and that God knows. Why? Because his kingdom is upside down from the world. James 2 verse 5, listen my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? The poor can be appreciated in their goodness, in their experience of life, in their culture, in their ways of living and in their faith. That was a quote from Pope Francis. See, our society's got it so wrong. It really has. It really has. What we measure a successful life to be is so off kilter in our society, through the media, through advertising, through things that we see. One of the things that I, working with debt clients, is, um, there's a, there's a material poverty, but there's also a tremendous poverty in terms of this exclusion and this being on the margins. A lot of the people that I work with, because, they're, because they haven't got any money, they're stuck at home often, or because of a health issue, or because of whatever it is. And what can they do all day other than put the TV on? What's on the TV all day? What gets beamed to them 24-7? It's an image of society that they just cannot meet. So they're constantly fed with a picture of, you're on the outside, you don't meet up to this standard, you're never gonna be like this, you're a failure. That's poverty. <sighs> and yet, 
What does God say? He says something completely different to that. And we need to get with what God is saying and not listen to society. A society that, that kind of goes along with basically there's an undertone of, yeah, the poor kind of deserve it really, don't they? They haven't, you know, they've made bad choices or they've kind of uh, done things, you know, they, they haven't made good decisions. We can judge. We can judge sometimes and that's what God calls us not to do. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus. So, let me just kind of finish with a few points of kind of application um, for you guys as, as, as a church. Um, I think one thing is that sometimes as Christians and as churches and as church leaders, we can kind of, we can get tied up in thinking about being strategic, like where do we go next? Where's God calling us to go? Uh, what's the best use of our resources? And that's, that's not a bad thing to ask. If you're, if you're a leader, if you're responsible for leading something, it's a good question to ask. What's the appropriate strategy? Well, the thing about this is, is that God's strategy is very different, isn't it, from the world's strategy. And when you care for the poor, it's not very strategic in, in some sense in the world's eyes. You know, when we can think of, well, God's calling us to influence. He's calling us to influence the city and to influence society. But then if you go to the poor, you're not likely to maybe find the, 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 the future leaders of the church or the future kind of, you know, movers and shakers in society. The thing is, God doesn't command us to do what is strategic. He commands us to care for the poor because he cares for the poor. It's not strategic, it's just right. So where's God in society? He's on the margins. And this is where he's called his people to be. So for you guys, Oasis, um, as I've said, you've, you, you've modeled this well. You've, you, you've, you've done really well. You've led and modeled this to others really well. And I just want to encourage you guys as you think and as you respond, as you consider, well, what, is, what does this next season mean for us? What does stepping up look like for us? That God will say to you, remember, you will always have the poor with you because that's where I've called you to be. And yet, among you, there need be no needy people. So you need to get to grips with what that looks like and how that's worked out. Just individually, as well. Um, I know this has not been very practical. It's been quite heart and vision kind of teaching, but um, just individually, just as we finish now, why don't you just open your heart to God and maybe just say, well, God, well, what, what do I need to do? Is there anything that I need to do? How do I change my thinking and my acting? Um, maybe for some, it's, it's, it's kind of building relationships, reaching out. Maybe for some, it's kind of researching issues more, like getting to grips with, well, what's this justice thing about? How do, how do I make a difference there? If some of you are already doing it, already engaged in it, maybe you've got resources you can share, things you can do. Maybe it's your time to step up and help, help the church. Let's just pray as we, as we finish. Father, thank you so much that everything that 
we've celebrated this morning is true. Lord, the beautiful, beautiful place that we started off in terms of our, our sonship, our identity in you, the fact that we don't have to work to earn your favor. It's all true. We, we can rest in that, and everything we do can come from that place of security and of rest. Thank you also that you, wanna, you want to uh, speak your word. You want to challenge, you want to direct us in your footsteps, Jesus. I pray for, for this church that you would guide them, lead them, speak to them about where that, what that looks like for them. What it means to remember the poor. What it means to be a church for the poor and with the poor and of the poor. Lord, I do pray that in Jesus' name that you would just come and bring uh, insight and, and revelation and, and guidance on this issue. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, that's good, isn't it? Um, I th I'm not going to add anything apart from this. Can we be allowing this to take root in our heart? Is in Jesus often said, you can hear stuff, but it's what you then do with it. And this isn't one of those ones where we go, right, here's my five points, so what I'm going to do out of this. No, no, this is one we let sit. And we allow it to say, actually, we're starting a new chapter as a church, and this is still part of our story, but it's going to look different. And there's going to be stories of justice that are going to be told through exploits of what we do. But it's allowed God to start to deposit. Can I also say this, that if you've come and you think, actually, but I fit into the bracket of the poor, man, you're so welcome here. And do you know what? God wants to elevate you within us as a community because we have so much to learn from you. And society often says, I oh, know you need to receive. I oh, no, no, we need to receive from you. And for some of you, I just felt you just need to hear that. We, we want to learn, and you have so much to help us in how we can be who Jesus longs us to be. 